Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Doing pretty good. Okay. A little, little low on sleep. Our puppy was waking up last night, but uh, I'm caffeinated enough to survive. So. Okay. Good. We had a fun conversation last week while I was uh, driving around taking my dog to rehab. Um, and, I, you know, we ended with this discussion of or, uh, loyalty versus mobility. And I was talking about that with a friend of mine uh, the day after uh, who works in at a university uh, faith communities. And this question of who gets to speak for the community is a very poignant one. Uh, we talked about when communities change or the principles change, how do you know how do you decide how do people handle it? And the question, the, the term that came up was this issue of moral authority, of who gets to sort of say what's right and wrong in a way that other people trust. And I thought that might be an interesting topic to discuss because we've talked about status before, and we've certainly talked about ethics and pro-social values, uh, but I also talk specifically about moral authority. Are you familiar with the term? With moral authority? Uh, just, yes. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, the idea yeah. um, of uh, who has the, uh, 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 the, well, the authority, the, the high morals to represent a group. Um, right. Well, right? maybe not so much represent, but to is that um, that it's cons well. Here's a way to think about this: is in terms of status games. Is generally speaking, in a context, high status people uh, uh, can give status, right? So you know the canonical case of like high school, the popular kids, when they allow you to sit at their lunch table, they are conferring status. Okay. Uh, and so that's and and so they can say and you know in even in school in general I was talking about this yesterday on my other podcast you know school is set up where the teachers because they control access to scarce resources grades letters of recommendation uh, assignments things like that they are high status so things that they do people take seriously and so that's mm -hmm. one form of authority. What's the interesting about a moral authority? is that it is a kind of status game but it's not um it's sort of um i'm not sure what the right word for this it is it doesn't line up necessarily with uh, power structures that's probably a good word distinction moral authority versus power right it's one thing to do what someone says because they have power you know the teacher because they can give you a bad grade it's another thing to do something because you believe it is right. Who's the believer here? Well, that's Who's the believer thing. here. It's a, it's oh. a, right. Yeah, so Go ahead. one thing it's 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 uh, one thing to do things for for the sake of your own conscience, right? Is that you know I personally don't feel good about this, so I'm doing this, or I personally feel the need to do that, and that is important and valuable. Um, but there's this third category where you take an action because someone you trust uh, uh, indicates that something is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And 
that is what I mean by moral authority. So it's, it's different than power. It's different, but related to conscience. And uh, it is arguably the scarcest resource when you're trying to create systemic change. Uh, the phrase I've used, moral authority, the result of moral authority is that people believe that you want what's right, you know what's right, and that you are able to do the, that they're able to make the right things happen. Because if someone, uh, if you don't believe those three things, then you're not going to follow someone uh, into a situation of great risk and uncertainty. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the hardest questions when we're trying to create these pro-social games and healthy communities is how do we create and recognize moral authority? Uh, I, I think a big reason for this is the, um, the I guess it's the collective action problem, right? You know, if there's a bully beating up all the little kids on the playground, uh, then each little kid individually knows it's suicidal to go up against him. But if they all go together, then they can overwhelm the bully. But that requires someone to say, hey, we can do this, you know, follow me. And there's an interesting thing about, I don't know if this is generally true, but it, it might be that moral authority only works uh, if you believe the other people believe in them, if that makes sense. If you believe that yeah, other people but, believe in the, the same person. Yeah, well, yeah, or believe in the same authority, principle, whatever. It, it's like there there has to be some um, social component to what I think to be an effective moral authority. Um, and <laughs> what's interesting is that there are different status games in different cultures and traditions for what creates moral authority. Like in traditional cultures, just being old was a form of moral authority because A, the world was a dangerous place and not everyone survived. And B, the world was, uh, it was a relatively consistent set of dangers. So if you followed someone who uh, had figured out how to survive all those dangers and did what they told you to, there's a very good chance you would also survive those same dangers. One of the crises of you know, Western civilization in the last, you know, 50 years or so uh, is that the world is changing so rapidly that just doing what the old people say is not necessarily a good survival technique. Uh, one of the more uh, sobering thoughts I heard, someone would ask, you know, what advice would you give to a 16-year-old today? And he said, uh, don't trust the old people because they don't know whether what they're saying is a timeless truth or a contextual uh, tool that has been rendered obsolete. And that's very sobering, especially being an old person and realizing that my values and beliefs and even morals were shaped by a time that may not reflect the reality my children are living in. So, you know, there's different... Uh, types of moral authority, um, the, like uh, George Washington, for example, had a great deal of moral authority 
DKC could have been king. He explicitly rejected that because, you know, so when, when today someone says they believe in democracy, it's not sure what it means. But George Washington, you know, he had an army, he had fans, he could have had himself declared king. And there would have been conflict, but he could have tried for it. But the fact that he refused to do so um, gave him moral authority. So renunciation in general is a powerful tool, right? Because we talked about how uh, that often virtue and pro-social signaling can be a cloak for getting other things, right? Just because somebody says that they uh, believe in this great and noble thing doesn't mean they're not going to stab you in the back when you turn around to go do it. Exactly. Uh, I think that what uh, you're saying is very true. And his, you know, George Washington's action reflects his uh, beliefs. His belief that, uh, that you know that we shouldn't live in a in a monarchy. Uh, mm -hmm. So people, that's an action that people can uh, uh, see confirming his beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, because it was because it was because it was a high cost for no other good reason. This gets back to I think we had this mm -hmm. discussion about proof of work and proof of stake as basis of trust. Mm -hmm. Is that you know if someone has done the work, uh, you know, and it's clear that they had many opportunities to, um, you know, betray you if it were for their own advantage and chose not to do so that creates uh, a level of trust. And then the flip side of that is, I guess, proof of stake, which is vulnerability. Like, uh, I will leave you this deposit to show that I trust you, and therefore, uh, you know you can trust me because I can forfeit that deposit, that hostage, whatever, if I fail you. And another way of looking at that is vulnerability. It is that, uh, you, uh, I'm trying to think if there's a good movie metaphor for this is that, you know, I hand you the last remaining gun and tell you to cover me. And so you could shoot me at any time. And that's the sign of I'm willing to risk that because I'm trying to accomplish this bigger thing. And so, um, the, um, and this is the, the, the challenge with philosophy, including this podcast, is that in some ways, the fact that we spend all this time doing this is a proof of work, right? Why would we bother doing this when no one's listening to us? We have no sponsors. It's a sign because we actually care, yeah. right? It's a sign that we really care about these issues and are willing to invest the time. And that's worth something. But on the other hand, there's no real trade-offs other than opportunity costs. Right, and so I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who have power because for them to do a podcast like this to talk about what's wrong with the system, whatever, that has a real cost. Right, if a politician has these sort of freewheeling discussions, their opponents could rip them to shreds by taking quotes out of context. Um, and you know, in some ways, we have the freedom to dream because we are not really responsible. Right, if you were a head of a corporation or the SEC or you know, uh, something like that, and you had these great, you know, free-form conversations about how great the world would be, then people would understandably say, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you make it? And it's kind of hard to create that safe space to 
um, to figure things out if you have too much power, because people mm-hmm. expect you to have the answers. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase, I'm not sure where this came from, but in some ways what we were doing is art, in the sense that we can't really claim that it's going to change the world directly, but we are trying to articulate a possible future and inspire people, hopefully ourselves and others, that the world could be a certain way. Uh, probably the most successful example of this, I think, was Montesquieu. I get the names right. I'm bad at these. But he was a French philosopher who uh, wrote a, you know, a series of tr- essays about what uh, a Republican government could be like in the 1700s. And so when the uh, Madison and the, the framers wrote the Constitution, they often lifted passages straight from his essays to implement in the U.S. Constitution division of powers and, and things like that. I mean, those days may have been around in different forms, but he really, as an art project, this guy had dreamed up what a good representative governmental system would be. And that gave a blueprint for those who actually started building one. And so there's, I think there's the artist, then there's the man of action. Um, I guess, well, what was the sequence? Uh, something like, first there's the artist who dreams up a world and inspires people. Then there's the men of letters who talk about the idea and refine it and flesh it out and build a community of practice around it, or at least a community of, of, of knowledge around it. But then there's the man of action who uh, actually does the, the bold work of making things happen, like the George Washington who actually fought the British. And then after that is uh, the men of systems, uh, the Madisons and the Hamiltons who actually make things work. And I'm not sure if that's always the case, but that's probably a good way to think about it. Uh, art, letters, action, and systems. Am I making sense so far? Yes, yes. I'm reminded yeah, of uh, Steve Jobs versus uh, Tim Cook. Mm. Yeah, Tim Cook's very much a man of systems. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jobs was a man of action. And the, uh, in some ways, I guess the original art was Steve Wozniak, who built something and thought it was cool. Uh, but then Steve Jobs said, we could use this to change the world. Mm-hmm. And the, um, and that's one of the interesting things. I think in the world it is today, uh, these cycles are much faster and people can potentially even jump between different nodes. Whereas before these things were measured in decades, if not lifespans, but it's interesting to think about what the, um, and I guess that's kind of the, maybe that's a good question to have next is that if, you know, our art project, I feel like it's been fruitful. Um, and I, mean, I feel like I've learned a lot and it's been fun to talk these things through. Mm-hmm. It's probably worth thinking through. Uh, and I think that, uh, the point I was gonna make is that at each of the different stages, the proof of stake or the, the moral authority is different. Right, an artist has moral authority by being true to their inner voice, even when it makes no commercial or, or social sense. Right, that is the virtue of an artist. Um, and the, you get some moral authority just by daring to dream. I'm reading uh, The Diamond Age. Uh, Neil Stevenson, is it? I'm going to work on getting better at names. But, you know, he invents this whole uh, social universe. Um, and, you know, he, he earns a certain amount of authority just by his willingness to ask all these questions, like what would happen if the world was like this? And so a great author 
who you know doesn't just follow the conventions or the norms, but actually says, this is how I see the world possibly being. Uh, that earns something. But then the men of letters, and oops, did I drop off? No, something else in the background. Uh, their uh, moral authority really comes from their ability to communicate, uh, it, it interact with and communicate, right? Mm -hmm. So with me? Right? Yeah. And so we do a little bit of that here in that, like, okay, you, you, you not just having a great idea, but admitting you're wrong and adopting other people's points of views and synthesizing things and helping the conversation move forward. Uh, that is a form of moral authority in the second stage. Um, and then the third stage, the moral authority, we talk is much more about personal risk, risking money, reputation, was our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, as the founders discussed. Um, what's interesting is that in the, in the time of systems, moral authority becomes much more murky. Like it's kind of easy to point to who the heroes were uh, uh, before the American Revolution and during the Continental Congress and during uh, you know, Washington's reign of presidency. And after that, it gets really messy because there's so many alliances and political backroom deals, uh, like those musical Hamilton shows. It's not clear exactly if there's a good guy or a bad guy, or if they're just people who are effective and people who are ineffective. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting challenges um, in any, I mean, the American Revolution turned out probably better than any other revolution in history. I think a relatively distant second was the Roman, uh, the first four, uh, the beginnings of the Roman Empire under uh, Caesar Augustus, Mark Anthony. But um, it, it is hard to, and I think part of the problem is that, uh, it's funny, I was talking about this in the context of constructivism which is an educational theory about how you want people to generate learning on their own, not being told to just regurgitate facts. Mm -hmm. And the problem has always been, I said, you know, constructivism seems so great. And constructivism seems a great way to teach and a great way to learn. So why haven't constructivists taken over the world? Why are all of our educational systems still stuck in 1950s style rote memorization? And, you know, I think you can one reason the thing is that, okay, yeah, there's lots of reasons for that, but that the reason that the constructivists had to overcome it is that constructivists don't really know how to work with systems. They're really good at isolated learning things, but they don't say, okay, how do you put that together into a curriculum? How do you sell that to parents? How do you found a school that uses these principles that can attract stakeholders? All the things we do in like a lean startup model, that is not considered like a thing that constructivists do. And it's the same problem with artists uh, like Marxism. Like Marxism as a work of art inspiring people was absolutely brilliant. Marxism as a system for running an economy relied heavily on authoritarian repression, and they haven't really figured out a way around that. Um, and the people who are still Marxists, you know, they're in love with the art project, and they love fantasizing about the world, but they haven't actually bothered, they haven't actually figured out how to A, even uh, how, a, how to build something works. B, how to even get other Marxists to agree with them that this is the thing that works. It's kind of a weird, it, it's, it got stuck in the art project phase. And I think that is probably, um, you know, it's, it's down the road. The interesting question is, 
and I don't know if this is a, is a question we can even answer in this time where we have to wait for a different moment, is what practically could we do to turn this from a sort of private art project into at least a larger conversation? And yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's many different artifacts you could create, but it feels like you could waste a lot of time unless you actually knew who it was that was going to read the, the artifacts that we create. So, mm. uh, I don't yeah. have an answer, but I feel like we're getting close to needing to ask that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, the first thing is to accumulate some, some concepts, you know, recordings. Uh, second is... Uh, share with people who can help um you know publicize this stuff you know word of mouth yeah, actually, thing. i don't think so no uh, because okay. no because what occurs to me is that if our goal is to find people to help us we are not building any moral authority mm. right you have to either create something that a public work of art that inspires people to read it or we need to find an existing conversation right well so like as an artist you know the the moral authority comes from originality and authenticity but in the man of letters phase moral authority comes from generosity and contribution Right, because every community has lots of people who come by and say, you know, hey, I've got this great idea. Won't you give me resources? Right, anybody who has resources is they lose with questions like that, and so they require a proof of work, consciously or unconsciously, in order to feel it is worth their time. And so I think the interesting question is, what community or individuals have a proof of work? that we could actually, uh, we would actually want to perform because it aligns with our values and our vision, right? I don't want to go around running grant proposals because those are A, incredibly tedious, and B, it's kind of the opposite of the kind of world I want to live in, a bureaucratic checklist. Um, and I don't know offhand. Yeah, yeah I, I think, oh, I think I'm familiar with a, a few such projects that uh you mm -hmm. know write writings and, and people who have uh thought about the problems that we have mentioned and have um developed ideas uh yeah I've read those and analyzed those as part of my research yeah i mean you see some of those documents you've sent where you feel like yeah the challenge that i've always struggled with and i've been doing this since 9 11 is that there's people who deny that the problem exists there's people who uh, believe the problem exists, but have despaired of finding a solution. So they're not really willing to invest anything. And there's people who have attached their dreams to a very specific solution and have bought in on those assumptions, like the Marxists. They see all the problems we see with capitalism, but they are Marxists. That is part of their identity and no discussion or argument or evidence is going to shake some of those foundational assumptions or you know you even question them is to invite their wrath and so the hard part is to get to find a community that is fertile enough that it's worth joining but um open enough that our ideas would be useful to them and so 
Um, like in open source, you can find many ways to contribute to a project that's aligned. You can write documentation, you can file bugs, you can uh, donate, you can code, you can donate money, et cetera. There's all these different things. Um, for social systems, it's a lot less clear. And especially for, you know, the, like, you know, on the fringes of trying to find an alternative to capital. Actually, one group that is actually more interesting than most is a group called Zebras United. Uh, Libre uh, United? Zebra, Z-E-B-R-A. So you've heard of unicorns in Silicon Valley? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. And so zebras, zebras is the uh, the alternative to that. Is like, okay, we're not just like these yeah. one magical creatures that don't exist, that are super valuable. We are a community that, where there's lots of us working together, uh, you know, we make it better for all of us. And so a lot of people from, you know, marginalized communities, people of color, intersectional groups like that, uh, are involved in the Zebras thing. And also, you know, some of the people in the open source side, like uh, the Basecamp people. And I think even Eric Reese from the long-term stock exchange was connected to them in some way, though maybe getting them mixed up with somebody else. Anyway, so there's communities like that that are doing stuff. Um, but again, they are tend to be very tactically focused on solving specific problems. And the interesting question is that, and this is where it gets, you know, I'm gonna leave on this because I gotta go deal with my dogs is that um generally speaking people aren't directly interested in in your ideas or my ideas and so what i found is i have to say okay if i have these ideas i think they're powerful they should allow me to solve certain problems uh efficiently that are really hard for other people to solve because I thought through this and because I care more, because I'm willing to break assumptions that everyone else considers uh, uh, inflexible. And so I need to do is find someone who has a problem that my toolkit will help me solve for them. And I think that's the uh, kind of the acid test of a startup or of a philosophy is who feels the pain of this problem does not yet have a workable solution and is still hungry. And then you say, okay, then what can I bring to them in terms of hope, in terms of solution, in terms of ideas that will address that pain point? And that I think is how you uh, sort of uh, infect the world with your idea virus. Is by finding a willing host that is uh, looking for that. And that's, in fact, is the proof of work, is that we care enough about them to understand the problem from their point of view and translate ideas into something that they can uh, appropriate and see as their own. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, I'm not saying this is the time for it, but it is, that is, feels like the thing to be done. Yeah, that is, yeah, like you said, uh, more than the cost that we have uh, incurred, you incur additional costs to uh, understand the problem and, and match our uh, toolkit to see if we, if we can uh, uh, solve the problem. And yeah. Share that with them, yeah. Yeah, one of my big realizations when I left school was realizing that in school, 
like knowing the answer was a big deal. And in the real world, I've realized knowing the answer is at best one third of, of the way to a solution. The, the second third is actually living it out in the real world and proving that it works for you. And then the third step is being able to explain it in terms that other people can understand and appreciate. And those are at least as hard, if not much harder than the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Because they do all kinds of things. Okay. All right. So it wasn't meant to be a downer. I think it's actually encouraging because the nice thing about the universe is that the universe is generating new problems at a furious rate. <laughs> Political, <laughs> social, economic. And yes. odds are before the end of November, we will have even more problems to work with. Mm -hmm. and even more existing solutions that have been discredited and invalidated. And so it is a ripe market and it's a good time to be keeping our eyes open. And um, I guess we'll leave it there and pick it up next week. All right, Ernest. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Ernest. Have a good one. Bye. You too.